0: Are you ready to start? Let's
1: do it. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis.
0: And I'm Sky David. As we've said every week, we're leading up to elections, so we're overwhelmed with election news, but it is State Fair week, so that's a little glimmer. In the midst of election season.
1: Yeah. You'll get full analysis of the state fair on the back end of this podcast, but I think we do need to start off with some political news, and we had a debate last Friday.
0: Right. It was the only debate between Senate candidates Sherry Beasley and Ted Budd. It aired on Friday evening on Spectrum News, and you watched it.
1: I did. I Did not see it in Lifetime. I was doing a presentation, but I did see it on Spectrum News' website, which, by the way, you don't have to be a subscriber to see the debate. So you did not see the
0: debate. I didn't, no. Yeah. I think I was probably watching Shark Tank. (laughs)
1: You and the rest of North Carolina. I really don't know if we can say they're winners and losers. I will say probably both campaigns won because here's what we haven't seen this week. Loops of video showing where someone really goofed up.
0: That's what I expected to see like on my Twitter feed. I expected to see just like a goof or um, a zinger or something like that, you know, a 10 to 15 second clip of the debate. And I didn't really see much of that either.
1: Going into the debate, I thought both candidates had to do something that was kind of out of their comfort zone. So I was looking for Sherry Beasley to be less professorial and to kind of relate to people and be someone that, you know, you feel like you could talk to because Ted Bud, that is really his strength. He's this everyman North Carolinian. On his side of the aisle, I thought he needed to actually be more policy oriented because you don't really hear him talking about policy on the campaign trail. His campaign commercials are just kind of these oppo research, poll driven kind of this is going to get my base out. Now, here's where I'll say I think Bud had the edge over Beasley. If you watch the debate, if you're one of those that are undecided and you were turning on this debate because you were trying to make up your mind. I would say that Bud actually did better at getting into policy, although he really didn't go too deep, but he did show a mastery of issues as it pertained to the economy and foreign affairs. I'm not sure that Sherry Beasley was the most approachable. I don't know if you looked at the debate and said, yeah, I could sit down and have a beer with her. I think both did well, and if I was to judge it, I'd say it was a draw one thing that i thought was evident and that is our friend tim boyam did a great job moderating the debate tim was very intentional when he would ask them a question and the candidates used that debate move where you don't answer the question that's being asked you answer the question you want to answer it was almost emphasized that he was saying okay i'm gonna ask you again and if he didn't get the answer to a question He would say, okay. We're going to move on. And I thought he did a really good job of that and covering the big buckets of issues. Now, one of the other awkward things about the debate is I noticed both candidates never addressed each other. It was almost as if they were talking to Tim and the other candidate was not in the room. Sherry Beasley would say, and Ted Bud does this, that, and the other, and Ted Bud would say, and my opponent is a rubber stamp for Joe Biden. But I really thought that both had an opportunity to turn to the other candidate and say, this is what you're going to do to North Carolina. This is what I'm going to do. And I don't know if there are debate rules that Tim agreed to or not. I was going to call Tim today, but I saw on social media, the man's in Cancun after he did this debate. So I'm not going to bother him on vacation. I don't think the debate is going to make that big of a difference one way or another. We're not, I'm sure the polls are still locked in within a few tenths of a percent. From here on out, this is about more ads coming on TV, this is about get out the vote, and we got some news this week that there's even more money in North Carolina coming to North Carolina for the most part on behalf of Sherry Beasley.
0: Yeah, so the last couple of weeks we have seen different reports from different outlets about how national Democrats were not going to invest In Sherry Beasley's race, how folks felt like they had been burnt in previous North Carolina races where they spent a ton of money and then the Republican won anyway. And in those swing states, if you're looking at the swing states, we're a little bit further down the list than some of the bigger ticket swing states. However, this week, the Senate Majority Pack announced that they were spending another $4 million in North Carolina on some ads against Ted Budd.
1: And we should point out that this PAC is the pack that's affiliated with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. This $4 million injection into the last three weeks of the campaign, you're going to see it on your TVs.
0: So total in that race... Chuck Schumer's group has spent $10.5 million on behalf of Beasley. And Mitch McConnell's group has spent over $20 million on behalf of Bud. So if you're looking at that, that's not the candidates. That's those national PACs, how much they're each spending in ads now that we are in the final days.
1: Sherry Beasley has announced that since her impressive haul over the last quarter, we reported this on a prior podcast, that she was really raking in the money. Now, she's gone ahead this week and announced that Her next quarter report is going to be impressive.
0: She announced that she was going to be reporting $13.3 million through this quarter. And when the reporting deadline comes at the end of the week, we will see what Ted Budd Raised, but he did not make an announcement.
1: That's something that's noteworthy. We know last quarter he did raise $6.4 million, which was about a third of what she raised last quarter. I imagine he's going to come in short of what she's raised.
0: So in the last few episodes of the podcast, we've really been talking a lot about the issues that voters are looking for and hearing about in the election. And last week, Nathan mentioned it on the podcast, how crime is rising as an issue. And this week, the Wall Street Journal actually wrote an article about the wiley nickel Bo Hines race and crime playing such a large factor in that race. Yeah,
1: clearly, Democrats would like to keep the conversation on abortion Republicans would like to talk about the economy and the numbers we got this week, but crime also plays into that, and we know that there is a correlation between the economy and crime. But they're in the 13th District, which is right outside of Wake County, actually has part of Wake County, and it goes into Johnston and south of Wake. We are seeing Bo Hines attack Wiley Nickel as being the criminal choice for North Carolina. I believe those are his words. And we have Wiley Nickel, a state senator, saying that he is endorsed by the Police Benevolent Association and has even gotten uh, a police officer, I believe he's a chief of police, to cut an ad, talking about Bo Hines's criminal record and all of this, but we are seeing it not only in this congressional race, but you're seeing it out through legislative races as Mm -hmm. well. Two years after Democrats were really dinged up for this whole defund the police, you are seeing candidate after candidate in swing districts talk about police pay, then teacher pay. It has become really that central issue to the campaigns.
0: On the nickel Hines race, the statistic that I think was really astonishing, we, you and I were sitting in a committee and I showed it to you. I was like, this is crazy. It stated that voters are seeing a higher concentration of crime ads in that district than any other market in the country.
1: Roughly 70% of the political ads are centered
0: around crime. In our area. In our area. So, look to see that sort of messaging continue to ramp up until Election Day.
1: And I think a lot of the crime message is targeting suburban women. Mm-hmm. And we've heard this from legislative leaders, particularly on the Republican side, that yes, the Dobbs decision is a pointed issue that they're having to address in the suburbs. We've seen the Michael Lee ads and uh, the Sydney Batch ads, the Mary Wills Bodie ads. But crime, they believe, also polls well with suburban women. Speaking of that Michael Lee ad and that Senator Michael Lee race, he is running against Marsha Morgan down in New Hanover County. We've talked about it a lot because this race is the race to watch as it pertains to control of the North Carolina Senate. We do have an update on his lawsuit that he filed against Marsha Morgan, where she alleges that Senator Lee used his position in the General Assembly to benefit his clients, benefit his law firm. He sued, and this happened last week, actually, as the podcast was dropping, and Marsha Morgan, the campaign, has pulled the ad down voluntarily. I was told this week by the Senator Lee campaign that he is taking these allegations very seriously. It is not just political at this point. He's taking this personally and he wants to see it through.
0: Other ads that we saw drop this week, Stephen Wiley, who runs the House Republican Caucus, he had put out on Twitter a series of ads that were notable because they were in swing seats And they were really attack ads against the Democrats in those seats.
1: Yeah, one, we have a sitting member of the General Assembly on the Democratic side. Uh, There have been some allegations of domestic violence. The legal process has been used, been documented, and a uh, mailer was done on Representative Terry Garrison about these allegations. And, you know, this wasn't a race that was really kind of bubbling up for us, but certainly the Republicans see an opportunity here. And they are going after that Terry Garrison seat. We've also heard there are some some candidates on that Democratic side that are looking vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Toby Fitch in the Senate. He is running against Senator Buck Newton, or I should say former Senator Buck Newton. Many believe that Senator Fitch's days in the General Assembly are limited and that he will not be returning in 2023. And then Representative James Galliard in Rocky Mount seems to be on the ropes. So James Galliard is being challenged by Alan Chesser. Chesser might have the edge on Galliard. Put that on your fight card for November 8th for one of the races to watch.
0: Additionally, in Wilson County, that race seems to be tightening up current house member Representative Linda Cooper Suggs is running it against Ken Fontenot, and that race appears to be one of the ones you're watching over in the House. This is helpful because we've been talking a lot about the Senate districts, and we just wanted to highlight a couple of the House districts.
1: I think one of the things we need to do, Scott, and we'll do this before the November 8th election, is we need to put out kind of where these swing races are in the Senate and House. Something I know we'll be looking at on election night,
0: Unsubstantiated rumors. (laughs) My singing is so terrible.
1: Oh, I love it. It's good. Yeah, so this week, uh, man, I got this message on Facebook from one of our listeners. He's a lobbyist down the General Assembly. Wanted to share a rumor he was hearing.
0: He shared that he had heard that Senator Paul Lowe was going to run for lieutenant governor.
1: Democrat out in the Winston-Salem area. Senator Lowe worked on sports wagering this year with Senator Jim Perry. Lieutenant Governor's race is getting pretty crowded if these unsubstantiated rumors come to be.
0: So I was out of the office, but Brian got a chance to sit down with opposition researcher Darren Eustance to talk about the world of oppo research, something I think not a lot of people know about, but is really interesting.
1: Welcome to the Do Politics Better podcast. Thanks for being our guest
2: today. Thank you for having me.
1: Tell us exactly what your job is. What is it that you do in North Carolina politics?
2: Well, most people know me as somebody who does opposition research on behalf of Republican candidates and conservative causes, and that's certainly something I do. That's a big part of my job. I also do public policy research work for political clients, for private corporations, for businesses. I guess because of, you know, the people I've worked for and coming on the shows like like this to talk about opposition research. I've been typecast as as the oppo guy, so I feel a little bit like Christopher Lee in those old <laughs> Hammer movies from the 1960s, where I can do other things, but, you know, with with him, all everyone wanted to see him is as the is is as the vampire so i feel like i feel like that
1: is that an apt analogy the vampire and the oppo guy
2: if the vampire was actually very warm and cuddly and misunderstood yes <laughs> there would be an it would be an apt analogy which is why i wanted to come on yeah. and talk a little bit about what opposition research really is and how If you use opposition research correctly, it really is doing politics better.
1: The ads you see on television right now, the negative ads especially, specifically, come from the file of an oppo guy like you. Talk about what it is that you do as an opposition research guy.
2: First of all, I just want to say that I listened to last week's episode, and I remember, um, you know, Morgan Jackson said, wow, you must have run out of people who do politics better when you have hacks like me and Nathan Babcock. Who who do you got next week? (laughs) Well, here we go. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's not just North Carolina. I've done opposition research in a lot of states. i work for a lot of state uh, Republican caucuses. I've worked for a lot of Ie's
1: independent uh, expenditures. Yeah,
2: I've worked for some PACs uh, nationwide. Actually, Ex- I did more work out of state this year than I did in North Carolina.
1: You get your information, I would assume, from public documents. So people fail to pay their taxes, bankruptcies, even divorce, which seems to be a treasure trove of information about people. So are you hanging out in courthouses, just going through endless files? on candidates that have declared for office?
2: Yeah. Everything that opposition researchers do is entirely public record. Now, there is such thing as dark oppo, when a candidate might hire a private investigator, but that's usually not something I would be involved in. What I do is almost strictly public record collection and curation and putting it into a report that takes into account what I think is most important politically, uh, what I think would be the most salient for the voter, and what I think will not work. I'll say, here's everything I found, but I'll I'll also take something and say, this looks good, let me tell you why I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's up to the candidate and their, their general consultant to take my advice or not.
1: Courthouses, criminal records, civil suits. Is that where you're finding most of your information?
2: When I first started out, yes. Uh, A lot of it um, has shifted to, to the Internet and, in particular, social media. So there are always a few places you go and look. The first is newspapers. Um, If it's somebody who is a current office holder or is a well-known figure in some way where they would be quoted in newspapers a lot, that's the first place you go. You look up all the newspapers using LexisNexis or Westlaw, and you see what they said. You see what they promised. You see what they did.
1: So it's not just personal failings. It is they said this back in college in a student newspaper or even in their last campaign. And you're saying, hey, this is inconsistent with what they're saying now.
2: Actually, it's very rarely personal failings. I I suppose when the personal failings come out, that makes the most news. Right. Almost always, it's you are on the town council, and you promised when you ran that you weren't going to raise taxes. But here, I'm I'm reading the meeting minutes of May 2020-something. And it's, and it's it's quoting you as saying, we have to raise taxes, and I vote yes on this tax hike. So newspapers are important, and when I say newspapers, I mean newspapers, which means sometimes I have to use the microfilm machine.
1: Especially for those weeklies, right? Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> About three weeks ago, I had to drive up to the UNC campus to use their um, Wilson Library uh, collection of microfilm to look something up from uh, 2012-2013 because it was not online anywhere.
1: I imagine a lot of your work is done very early in the cycle. Someone has declared for office, a Republican approaches you and says, Darren, this is my candidate that's going to oppose me. You must get to work, I would imagine, pretty early.
2: Preferably, yes. Let me tell you the misconception. It's that opposition research must be used to go negative on your opponent. Hmm. And that's not true at all. Uh, Preferably, you'll never have to go negative on your opponent. Ideally, you'd just be able to talk about what you want to do in the office that you're seeking. What I tell candidates to do is not only get opposition research on your opponent, but you need inoculation research on yourself. And I tell them, if you only have enough money right now to do one or the other, you do it on yourself. Wow. You know your opponent is doing it on you. You need to know exactly what your opponent is going to find and be ready to either get ahead of the story, either knock it off the board as an issue right away by coming out with it or no, okay, this is coming. We're going to write out our talking points on this right now. We're going to line up people to, to say, you know, I support this person on, on on this so that when this story does hit and it hurts me, we are ready to go with our counter. Then when that's done, you want to sit down and create what I call a four-square, sometimes called a Leesburg grid. It's just four boxes, and each of them have a label. What I will say about myself, what my opponent will say about me, what I will say about my opponent, and what my opponent will say about himself. And using what I've collected, you should be able to fill up all of those boxes and what you're doing is your take is like a blacksmith. You're hammering out on that anvil what your campaign message is going to be. Where are you strong? Where is your opponent weak? Where are you weak? Where is your opponent strong? Which of these do you think will be relevant to the voter in this particular election cycle, in this particular year? Uh, where, where do you and your opponent kind of wash each other out? where it's, 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 it's neutral. I know you want to talk about this particular issue. This may be your issue, but you look at your four scoring, like your opponent isn't weak there and you don't have any noticeable strengths there. We need to talk about something else because I don't think that's going to be a salient message.
1: It must be very awkward to deliver such bad news to your client.
2: Uh, the worst oppo finding I ever had was on a client who hired me to do inoculation
1: so you wanted to find their weaknesses you found it you had to present their weaknesses. oh boy
2: did i <laughs>
1: <laughs> what and happened
2: he thanked me for my work he gave me a check and sent me on my way and he ran anyways and of course it came out um he did not win but you know i i did the best i could uh, I actually think he he had a pretty decent explanation if he actually, you know, wanted to come up with an explanation, but wanted to put his head down and, and run through it, and he didn't.
1: I mean, most politicians are optimists, right? The glass is half full. You're kind of that fly in the ointment
2: yeah yeah I'm the skunk at the garden party I'm the vampire at the blood bank to 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 continue the christopher lee
1: um
2: i mean i'm I'm the guy who shows up with with um with the roll of paper here and they're like, ah oh God what's he going to tell us a lot of times it's very difficult to tell a candidate that they shouldn't run but i've worked for a lot of candidates who shouldn't have run.
1: Yeah. Do they ever come to you prior to announcing like, hey, Darren, I'm thinking of running for the state Senate. I have a feeling there's some stuff out there. I want to see if you can find it. If you find it, I'll make a decision to either bow out or charge ahead. Does that ever happen?
2: I did 2023 work in the summer of 2022 for candidates in some other states where the legislative elections are in 23. Yeah, I mean, they've already thought that far ahead.
1: So those are wise campaigns.
2: Yes, I like to think so. <laughs> okay. By, by the way, North Carolina State House, State Senate candidates thinking of running in 24. Um, <laughs> my 2023 schedule is pretty, uh, pretty open right now, so, uh, so give me a call.
1: What exactly, Darren, are you looking for when you go to a courthouse?
2: It's pretty simple. Any civil suits. That has the target's name on them, or any criminal cases uh, relating to the target. With criminal, you'll get a traffic ticket, you'll get a parking ticket, you'll get something like that. And you know what? That I'll put it in because it's my job to put it in. But that's not really a hit. Now, if you have like you know 20 traffic tickets a year, uh, maybe some, <laughs> maybe someone should take you aside, <laughs> and say, hey, you know. Oh, Lay off the, the accelerator there, pal. But um, very rarely do you find something that's bad, but, you know, occasionally you do. And I've I found D- DWIs, recent DWIs, I found D- DWIs that happened while the candidate was running. Wow. Occasionally you'll get, you know, something that's bad and then you bring it to the attention of your client. Hopefully it's not your client who's, who's got that problem, but you bring it to, to, to their attention and you decide how you're going to use it. Civilly, on, on the civil side of things, um, well, it's one of two things. You're either suing somebody... Or somebody is suing you. So you pull the case and you read through it. And I've read through so many cases I can probably fake my way through being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You you just have to to like read the motion, you know, the motion in Laleem to suspend the motion, to the amendment of the motion, to the notice, to the appeal of the motion, and you just figure out what what is the crux of this case and is it useful? One aspect of civil is divorce. All divorces are on the civil side of things. I, I've pulled divorces. I've pulled very amicable divorces that are four pages long, and that's that. And I've pulled divorce cases that were literally 700 pages long. Wow.
1: All that's fair game for you.
2: Yes, it is. It's fair game for me because it's fair game for my evil doppelganger over on the other side mm-hmm. who's working for the other campaign. There is no such thing as a magic opposition research one. And I tell this to my clients, you, you know, if, if there was and I had one, I could charge extra. But everything I can find, anyone else walking into that courthouse can find. Then um, what you do after that is, you know, property. How many properties does this person own? Where are they? Do they pay property taxes on time? I've come across a lot of people running for office, haven't paid their property taxes on time, are delinquent on their property taxes you know, right now as I'm looking. And if they're my client, I give them a phone call right then and there. Hey, pay your taxes now.
1: Have you ever been in a situation where you're doing oppo research, you're doing both the inoculation and the opposition, and you thought... My guy is awful. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if you were in that district, would you have voted for the Democrat based on your oppo research?
2: I would probably write somebody. in. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm, I'm a very bipartisan guy. In fact, I'll vote for the Republicans. Occasionally, I'll vote for a Libertarian. And okay. occasionally, I'll, I'll, I'll write somebody in. But uh, You've never a,
1: voted for a Democrat.
2: I have, but not in several years. Okay. I really do believe in doing politics better. And I believe that what I do is part of that in stopping bad candidates from getting elected.
1: Before you get there, though, I want to ask you an internet question. We've been told the internet is written in ink, not in pencil. Is there anything a candidate can do today? Let's say you're thinking of running for the House in 2024, but you've got some pretty bad social media out there. Would you advise that prospective candidate go on to their social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok? Would you advise that they go ahead and start deleting things now? And if they do that, is there a way for an oppo person to find those deletions?
2: Unfortunately, you've asked a question where I'm going to have to give free campaign advice to the esteemed opposition. But um, yes, one of the first things I look for before a candidate has the opportunity to delete their social media history is their social media history I'm not too worried about telling them that because if you're listening to this show You're probably smart enough to know that and inevitably Every year a lot of candidates just ah, there's there's nothing on my Facebook I'm, I'm fine But I'm going to find it. Sometimes rules for politics are also rules for life. So all you young people out there, if there are any listening or or more likely parents of young people, this isn't a professional opposition researcher giving you advice. The internet is forever.
1: Is it, though? So if I delete a post that I made in 2017 that is somewhat embarrassing and I hit delete, can you find it?
2: Possibly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's always the Wayback Machine.
1: You're not just saying that. There is a Wayback Machine. Yes,
2: there is. And I'm not talking about the old 60s Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon either. No, it's the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, which scours the Internet, taking uh, screen grabs of sites at random times. And if it screen grabs your Twitter account, uh, I got news for you. It might still be on there. I should point out that I'm not looking for offense archaeology. I, it sounds like I am, but I'm really not looking for something stupid you said when you were 17. I was 17. You were 17. We said stupid things. Now, I may point it out to my client, but I'll also say look, you don't attack 17 year olds.
1: Well, you say that, but the campaigns don't have to say that, right? Th- thank you for that information, Darren. Here's your check, and we're going to use this as we see fit.
2: I don't think they should, <laughs> but sometimes they do, and that's why before you run for office—actually, be- really, before you do anything, just, if you're listening to this, go home tonight and scour <laughs> Or your social media, for crying out loud. I mean, you, you don't need any tweets from more than two years ago, okay? It's, yeah. not, it's not that important, guys.
1: Let's talk a little bit about you. I want to know what kind of guy goes into this kind of work.
2: Someone who needed money back, back in grad school. So, um,
1: Where did you go to school?
2: Okay, so I'm actually from upstate New York. I'm from Rochester.
1: Okay. The accent does not give you away. Oh, that's good. That's good. I <laughs> Drop it.
2: Uh, for those of you wondering, this is a lower Canadian accent, eh? Yeah, you know, that's what this is all about. Did you go to college up there? Yes. I went to, to Geneseo State University up at South of Rochester. I graduated there. I wanted to be a teacher. I uh, decided it wasn't for me, but for some reason, I'd always been fascinated by politics. And I joke, they they haven't found a cure yet, but maybe one day they, they will. I remember it distinctly. It, it was 1988. I was in second grade. And a few weeks before the 88 presidential election, we're talking about, you know, this presidential election coming up, and of course, the second George
1: race. H. W. Bush versus Michael Dukakis. Yes,
2: and uh, I wanted Dukakis to win because I thought he had a funny name. No, uh-huh, it's the only time I've ever supported a Democrat for president.
1: Right. Okay, <laughs> I think you were the uh, only one that year. I might have
2: been. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we even took a poll in our class. Of 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 eight year olds, George Bush won. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know what effect it had on my my eight year old classmates, but I was just fascinated by this. I'm like, wow, that's that's really interesting. And you people run, and they get nominated, and big big election across the whole country. I mean, when when you when you're eight years old, it's like, wow, this is this is amazing. So. Four years passed. It's ninety-two. I'm twelve. I've I have more civic awareness as a twelve-year-old now. And the next election comes in, and i I I was hooked. I watched the TV ads. I watched the
1: debates. That's Clinton versus H- George H. W. Bush,
2: and a and a bit of Perot in there too. Don't, That's right. Don't forget him. Both both my parents voted for Perot that that year. I asked I asked my mom why. She said because I don't have a job.
1: You're studying political science in college?
2: So, yeah, I went to college um, to study history and poli-sci. I wanted to be a teacher, but then I changed my mind around my third year. I said, I don't know if I can do that. But politics seems like an interesting career. Maybe I'll go into that. So I, so I graduated, and then I got accepted to the George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. So moved down to D.C. just a week after I, I graduated from, from college, and I got two job offers. One job offer was an unpaid internship from the RNC. I'm like, well, that's, you know, I could open some doors, learn a lot, meet some people, but it's unpaid. <laughs> and the other, in, the other job offer was a full salary startup opposition research firm. I'm like, well, I'd rather take the RNC job, but I don't want to live under a bridge for six months drinking rainwater, so I'm going to take the job that pays me. So I I took that job and learned all about opposition research and what it was and how it was used and how to find it. And I worked there through the 2002 cycle, 2004 cycle. And my boss there decided to go on and do other things. He went to law school and he's a lawyer now and uh, kind of shut the business down. And I decided, well, I know how to do this. I, I, I have contacts and I'm going to do this. How did
1: you end up in North Carolina?
2: I ran out of gas on U.S. 1. <laughs> Looked around, said, this, this looks nice. Uh, well, no, so my parents by now had moved to Florida, which just had a glut of campaign consultants. So I didn't see myself really breaking in there. So I was looking around. I need a state that I feel is up and coming politically, that's also a nice place to live, and doesn't have a glut of campaign consultants. And I made one of the best decisions of my life, and I moved to North Carolina in February 2008. And, like, what, nine months later, we were, I think, the closest state in the presidential election. And since then, North Carolina has been the quintessential battleground state And I've gotten to be a part of it. And it's been an amazing experience.
1: When you approached me about coming onto the podcast, I was like, Darren, man, come on, you're an oppo guy. How am I supposed to say you do politics better? I want you to make the case as to how your industry does politics better.
2: I will make my case by giving you a case study. Okay. A certain number of years ago, in a state that's not North Carolina, I was hired to work on a sheriff's race. I was hired by the incumbent and the challenger wasn't well known, but the challenger had some experience in state police. So I just do my usual stuff, newspapers, social media, properties, have they incorporated any business, taxes, you know, going through everything. And then I get to the courthouse. So I'm standing there in the lobby of the courthouse, in this unspecified county in an unspecified state that's not North Carolina. And I come across one of those 700, 800, 900 page cases. Like, oh, God, what's this going to be? The Challenger had been a state trooper and had been fired from that job for a wide array of malfeasance. Mm. I mean, this was bad. And the reason that was in the courthouse is because he sued to get his job back. So everything was in evidence. His statement of firing with with a complete report by his supervisor, these are the things he did wrong. This is why he is fired. These are the psychological reports. This is why he was not fit for duty. Here are all the write-ups I had to do because he wasn't doing his job. All of that had to be submitted as evidence, and all of it was right here in this just about 900-page document. So I'm just sitting here at this terminal. Thank God there was no one behind me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm just speed reading through this as quickly as I can and printing out the important documents. I think the final print job ended up being like $200. That's how many I printed out. I took it home and I just went through it with a highlighter and scanned it all in and sent it to my client. Uh, this person was probably a really nice guy. From from everything else I got from my research, he actually did seem like a decent guy, but he had no business being a county sheriff. None whatsoever. And I sent this to, to my client who, of course, used it. And yeah, it Turned into some negative ads. It did, but you know what happened next? My client calls me up and says, "Hey, um, the local newspaper would like to know where you got this information and how you got this information." Now, this is not a small county, and it's not a small newspaper. This is a daily. It's a it's a mid-sized daily newspaper, and not a single person. In that newspaper knew how to go to the local courthouse and type in someone's name on the terminal and pull this up. The bottom line is you may not like the negative ad that that resulted and I understand that but if I didn't do it no one was going to do it. If I didn't do it and you as the voter didn't know that you wouldn't have had pertinent information that you needed to make an informed choice about who your net sheriff is going to be. Now, I don't always like what my research has turned into, and I don't like all negative ads. But in a case like that, the voters needed to hear that truthful information. It made them more informed, and they made the right decision. My client won.
1: What would you say to those who say, Look, I just want to hear what this candidate feels about this issue versus that candidate. And all I get is Ted Budd is terrible and on the take. Or Sherry Beasley, all she does is work for a law firm that has lobbyists in it. I want to hear the issues. What do you say to that?
2: I agree with you. I don't want to see my work on a TV screen in the middle of October. I want you to talk about all the good things you're going to do. Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't work out like that. You need to draw a distinct contrast with your opponent. All I can say is, if I hand you the opposition research, it's accurate, it's truthful, I've given you the recommendations you need to inform the electorate. And as for the the electorate itself, I really hope that you're able to sort through the nonsense and get down to, to the facts and choose the best candidate. And I hope that candidate is a Republican because I am partisan. But I want you I, I want the voters to be informed. I want you to look at them both and decide this one is more qualified than than the other one. This one will do more of what I want than the other one. So that brings us to our magic
1: wand question.
2: If you could fix something
1: in our politics right now, what would it be?
2: Well, because I'm a longtime listener, I'm going to do what uh, Billy Richardson did. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who used his magic wand to create more magic wands. Number one's a little silly, but this has been stuck in my craw since, since the 2000 elections. Red states, blue states. No, 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 no. Republicans have always been blue. Mm-hmm. D- Democrats have always been the red party. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, was, it was that way. Go, go back and look at old election atlases. Republicans were always the blue party. Yeah, That's in Europe, we the,
1: in Europe, the left is red, right? And in Canada, too. Yeah, yeah, and and the conservatives. Yeah, are blue.
2: we are like the only uh, first world democracy that that has the colors reversed, and I hate it. And it's just it's just ossified now because of the of the website Red State, and, yeah. and, and an entire generation of voters has now grown up. Uh, thinking one party is one color, the other party is the other. But no, it would. And in fact, that really only happened because the 2000 election went into overtime, and yeah. you had a month of these networks saying, "Well, the red states are these, th- and the blue states are this." Th-. But really, that only happened, I believe, because historically, the incumbent party, when you look at the the network maps, the incumbent party was always identified with blue and the the challenger party was always identified with with red but so all the states that voted for bush just became red states right and it's never changed and i i i hate it i hate it i hate it, I hate it. but it's too <laughs> late there's nothing i can do about it unless i find a magic wand
1: all right got it number two
2: i have again listened to your show long enough to understand that one of the magic wand wishes for a lot of the legislators who come by is this is a part-time job or at least a three-quarter time job and you're paying us thirteen thousand five hundred nine hundred dollars yeah thirteen nine but we're all afraid to propose a pay hike. I mean, we all agree we need a pay hike, but no one wants Darren Eustance to be scouring through (laughs) your voting record and say, that I voted for a pay hike. So here's another magic wand. I propose a truce right here on this show. I am proposing to all of my fellow opposition researchers and campaign consultants of both sides, a truce. If somebody wants to Sit down with other legislators and say, all right, let's work out what a reasonable salary would be and propose that. And you all want to get behind it. As long as that's all you do, there's like nothing else slid in there or anything. I will, per my contract, have to put it in my report. But I will also say in my report, don't you dare use this. This was good. This had to be done. Because I no, I get it. You can't have a diverse general assembly that reflects the state when the only person that can have this job is either, you know, self-employed or a multimillionaire or retired or some some combination of those three. It's impossible to be a family man or a family woman run for this seat every two years and, and do the job. Okay. And I think the state is suffering as a result. So fellow APA researchers, I am calling for a truce. And if you're with me, uh, leave a comment on Brian's Twitter page <laughs> and tell us, tell us that, that you agree. So
1: Darren, I have to say, man, as you know, you and I have been communicating for the last few months. And uh, I was a skeptic. But I really am convinced that you know how to do politics better. I appreciate you being on the podcast today. This was a fascinating conversation. I just appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics. I appreciate the way you came on to this podcast and explained your work. Again, Darren, you know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm
2: glad I convinced you and I hope I convinced everyone, everyone else out there too.
0: The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more more information.
1: You know, there are so many facets of politics that you don't see. You don't talk about fundraising, very high profile. We all hear from fundraisers, political strategists, they're on TV, communications, you see that. But the behind the scenes mechanics of how opposition research works, it plays into everything you are seeing right now in a political candidate and their campaign. From the positive ads to the negative ads, it all starts with a guy like Darren Ustads hanging out at a courthouse, getting on the internet, going through newspapers, and issuing a report for his client. Thank you, Darren, for sharing this part of Politics. I think we are better for it and we appreciate you being on the podcast. Tweet Tweet of of the week. week.
0: So, this week's Tweet of the Week is not a political tweet. It is from Daily Mail Online. They're at Mail Online. It states According to a recent poll of 2,000 young people aged 16 to 29, emojis used by old people include the thumbs up, the red love heart, the okay hand, and the grimacing face. And there's top 10 emojis that make you look old, particularly thumbs up. Gen Zers say they feel attacked whenever they see a passive aggressive thumbs up emoji.
1: <laughs> what do you mean they feel attacked?
0: It says a 24 year old summed up the Gen Z argument saying it's better never used in any situation as it is hurtful. And this is my Why public is petition. Let's Everyone has turned on millennials for so long. Let's turn on Gen Z. Let's band together. You and me, boomer. <laughs> Uh, What am I? I'm All right, I'm 51. I'm somewhere. What am I? I think that's a question better left (laughs) for you to figure out inside your own heart.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to figure out why someone would feel offended by the thumbs up.
0: Someone said like it could be aggressive. Like, you know, if you told me I needed to do something and I was annoyed by it, I could just give you the thumbs up. And really, it means like a middle finger or something. Oh, my gosh.
1: All right. I, I, I don't get it, but. The I-
0: same thread, I should say. They also had, speaking of passive aggressive behavior in the workplace, here's some phrases you may read in your boss's email and what they really mean. So it's passive aggressive corporate email jargon decoded. So this sparked a conversation between you and I about passive aggressive North Carolina jargon.
1: Oh. Yeah, there's plenty of it.
0: Yeah, I'll start. Go ahead. So when people are debating at the General Assembly and someone says, my good friend over there, that means (laughs) I'll decode that for you. I hate this person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And they're completely wrong and misinformed. Yeah. I, I don't know if you guys do this in Illinois, but bless your heart. Bless your heart means you're an idiot. I'm embarrassed for you. Uh,
0: Another saying that you hear a lot at the NCGA is, this isn't my dog, I'm just walking it, which means do not ask me any questions about this. If you have a question, ask staff. (laughs) Right. And a
1: lot of times it's a House member or a Senate member running the bill in the other chamber. Yeah. Don't ask them questions. I believe that this is a simple bill means I've hidden something on page three. (laughs) Just read the bill title and let's move this bill out of committee, but don't ask me about page three.
0: This isn't like jargon decoded, but it is an often used phrase when people say at the General Assembly five times a day, you say, hey, how are you? And they say, living the dream. <laughs> 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 it makes me want to off myself. <laughs>
1: Another jargon I find interesting at the General Assembly when someone says, well, this legislation is just one more tool. Tool in the, the toolbox. Tool yes. Yeah. And what that means is this bill is not necessary, but please pass <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> I like it when somebody gets up and thanks the bill sponsor for their hard work <laughs> and then proceeds to tell you the 83 things they hate about the bill and why they won't be voting for it. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, if you're trying to keep up with Gen Z emojis, don't use the poop or the thumbs up or the clapping hands or the red heart. I use
1: at least two of those. And I'm going to continue. I'm not going to have anyone tell me I can't use any of those. I don't think young people know what they're talking about.
0: (laughs) I mean, I have clients that are this age. You know, it's interesting. They've reverted back to the way people did things before emojis, like they'll type out a smiley face or something.
1: It's ridiculous. (laughs) It really is. You use emojis.
0: Oh, yeah, I do. A lot. My most frequently used emoji is the laughing, crying. It appears that I use the one with the looking glass. You hate it when I use that, don't you? <laughs> right. because When I'm confused, I'm like, I send the looking glass.
1: If I tweet something, I'll get a screenshot from Sky. You use the looking glass.
0: <laughs> yeah, if you tweet something stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the shrug a lot. You know that. Yeah. And I also use the dancing salsa.
1: <laughs> yes, you do. I like
0: the dancing salsa. It just means I'm in a happy mood. Right. In other North Carolina news... The State Fair starts this week. By the time you're listening to this, the State Fair has begun and it will continue for 11 days. Yeah. I love the State Fair. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Remember last year I asked you to go multiple times. You didn't go because you wanted to go to the beach. Mm -hmm. Anyway, everyone knows the State Fair is interesting because they have all kinds of new food items that are like weird. And so we're just going to give you a little look into some of the new food items this year.
1: As you do that, could you list the Weight Watchers points that are oh, assigned to each of these not
0: foods? Not every single thing has to be about you. Well, I want to go and enjoy. I know that's the first time anybody's ever told you that.
1: <laughs> I want to go enjoy the food. I just want to know how many points I should allot.
0: There's going to be Mexican street corn served in a bag of crushed Doritos. Mm. A dill pickle pizza.
1: That sounds good, actually.
0: Actually, what I thought sounded good was tater tots, but they're supposed to taste like churros. It's a good idea, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Never thought of it, but like now it seems to be like it does go together. There is a mini donuts with a Pepsi glaze topped with optional chopped peanuts. Very North Carolina Oreo crumble cookie dough on a stick, pumpkin spice mini pancakes. Oh, there's the churro tots, banana cream pie donuts cornbread, and chili funnel cakes, and mini blueberry pies. When I first moved down here, I was so excited to go to the state fair because in Illinois, our state fair is so far away, but you're here. I went so excited. My boyfriend at the time was hyped to try like a wild food, and he got the donut. It's a donut with a burger in the middle, and then just yakked it all up. That ain't right yeah. there.
1: <laughs> oh, that's good. I love the fair. I love the people watching. It's a great event and a,
0: I like to go see the animals mm-hmm. I really try to do all parts of the state fair. I like the um, ride where you go over the state fair and you mm-hmm. can kind of just watch it That oh, is I fun. love that. I'll do a shout out to Whitney Campbell Christensen, who listens to the podcast. She's a lobbyist. She kind of had a storyline on her Instagram about how she was competing in the tree decorating contest, but she feels she wasn't going to win because some other guy had like all these extra things and she's like, I can't beat him, but I'm fine to come in second.
1: How many times are you going to go to the fair this year? Because you usually go multiple times.
0: Well, I think last year I only went once. I'll probably only go once this year. But prior to that, I lived over by the fair. So it was a lot easier to get to and just lived across the street and we would walk over. So how many times are you going? Are we going together?
1: I will go. I'll I'll commit to going. And if other folks want to go, we can make this a a field trip. Yeah. All right. So let us know if you want to go. Speaking of gatherings, we're talking about having an election night watch here at our office in downtown Raleigh. It's, of course, Tuesday, November 8th. We've had a few folks from NC Poll reach out. You know, we had done it back in the primary. It was a fun event. Do it again. We know there's a lot of stuff out there. The parties and the different campaigns have their events. You're free to stop by. Go to those. Got a couple TVs here. And we'll
0: make some food
1: some food no spiking the football if your candidate wins and someone else loses no uh no crying either there's no crying in politics it'll be fun so let us know reach out we'll get something out on social media as we get closer to the election but be fun to gather with folks and see the results i think we are in for a long night though definitely a lot of tight races out there
0: As always, thanks for listening. If you have any unsubstantiated rumors, definitely send them our way. We will update you on the news of NC Poll next week. But until then, relax, go to the fair, and remember to do politics better. When I'm okay, don't sing. Please don't sing. Kind of (laughs) bossy. The first time I remember being called bossy, I think I was in fourth grade. (laughs)